Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. It's three years since the Tarake Atafari, or Auckland Climate Plan, was launched. And in that time, we have had COVID and several lockdowns. We have had a change of Auckland Council. Uh, We've also had a change in central government. And a lot is going on in Auckland. And I thought no two people would be better equipped to give us an update on what's happening in Auckland with the plan and also the shifts in politics uh, and how that's affecting our approach to climate change than Councillor Richard Hills. Kia ora. Hills with an S? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Plural. Yeah, two hills. Um, Councillor Richard Hills, who's also uh, the chair of Planning, Environment and Parks Committee, and Perrin Raffae Thompson. Kia ora. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> who is the head of Climate Innovation and Sustainability at Tataki Auckland Unlimited. So thank you both for joining me um, to talk about Auckland. Richard, you spoke very passionately at the beginning of the Climate Festival about the experience of the Auckland storms, the January storms. Tell us about that, what it was like as a ward councillor, what was happening in your in your rohi? Yeah, kia ora Vincent, thanks for having um, me. The, um, the experience of that morning at the Climate Festival, I didn't expect to get the, I did get a bit emotional that day. Um, I think it was the focus on why, on water um, and climate that really kind of triggered that. And it was really, really cold that morning for the Pōwhiri, but it was, it was a, an amazing event. But I did speak about, um, I guess, the feelings of that night uh, on the 27th of Jan and the, the weeks after. Um, there was a lot of uh, criticism of council for not being ready or not being uh, clear or communicating anything, and I did feel that too as a an elected member. I was sort of seeing things early with my eyes and through social media and people mm sending me TikToks and um, questions, and it just, it was significant what was going on. About three or four o'clock, the rain was coming down pretty hard. I started seeing our local parks kind of fill up with water at an alarming uh, rate. Our The normal places, and yes, I did go around to the normal places, which start flooding in my community to start kind of logging uh, jobs. And then I realized it was probably going to be a little bit of a, uh, situation where we couldn't just be logging jobs. It was it was flooding. So the first thing I did, I was um, saw some kids playing in the on, on their boogie boards across uh, one of our parks and kind of put it out there to the community groups like, please get your kids away from this rapidly yeah. rising water. Not only would there be likely to be um, sewage in the, that water by now, but also the the rapid rate it was rising would be significantly dangerous. Um, I then saw the uh, images of Sunny Nook Park, which was already full, so we'd recently put a detention pond in there that set to a a one in 100 year flood that was full. This was at four or five o'clock. And then the busway. The busway was, there was water coming into the buses that has never in my experience flooded at all. Incredible Um, pictures on social media of the water just lapping people's feet. Yes, so it, it got to the top of the busway and it was overflowing onto the motorway. I think at about 5.30, nearly every motorway in Auckland was closed, mm. so that it was flooding right across the city. So at that point, I knew just to get messages out, please get away from the water, get ready to evacuate, Get um, do not try and walk through or drive through. Um, unfortunately, about half an hour later, we had um, I'd had messages about people being um, kind of swept away in the Waido Valley, and so I, it was just ca- chaos, really. Yeah, and yeah. 
and there was not clear communication. But what I was seeing was just that water taking back its original pathways, overland flow paths, the floodplains, um, everything that you know, mana whenua have been telling us for decades or centuries do not do not pipe that our do not uh, put a road over that because that is that is not a way to contain huh. our streams and rivers and they just took back their original paths and yeah. unfortunately took everything else with them. You mentioned the number of slips in Auckland it was phenomenal. What was the what was the number? Yeah, so on council land it's about three hundred and thirty, but on across Auckland we estimate about ten thousand slips. Wow. And and there's no pattern either. It's in farmland. It's in cliffs. It's in valleys. It's on well vegetated land. It's on land with trees been recently removed. There's no clear blame apart from the fact the ground was so saturated. Mm. And then you get about 300 mils of rain in four hours, and that just turned what you know essentially turned the earth into icing on a cake, and it just melted off. Yeah, well, it was pretty horrific to see. So I suppose the question behind all of this, I mean, it's amazing to hear that. Thank you. But the question is, what impact has that had? In your experience, in both of your experiences, at the front line of planning, of communicating climate change, Perrin, what what's your experience? Has that experience, the drama of it, has it elevated and made it easier for you to convince peers and colleagues and um, you know people in decision making power to take climate mitigation and adaptation seriously? I think yes and no. It's it was interesting. Personally, we were quite impacted. I live in the same kind of area as Richard, so just so grateful for Richard's communication during that time because we were away, and knowing what was happening to our house, we had a slip. One of those people right. had a slip, big One slip behind us. Yeah, yeah. And um, but coming back to work because we were away for our holiday, you know, the January mm-hmm. time, came back to work and. As Tataki, we were so impacted. Like Auckland Zoo was closed for a good couple of weeks. And I think they were operating on 60% capacity after they opened up. ATS Centre was flooded and et cetera, et cetera. So we had a whole lot of impact. Western Spring, Western Spring is still it's out of action. So it's, um, I think it was we were so busy responding mm-hmm. that you don't even click. It's actually, it's climate change. Mm-hmm. And a few conversations I had to be involved in some of the discussions saying, so how come I'm not invited to all these risk management meetings because it is climate change. And I think what supported our conversation was um, climate disclosures that we do. And it's um, so um, under the, the last government, we have to do we have to do reporting on how we manage our climate risks, so yes. climate disclosures. Yes. It's part of the TCFD. TCFD. Yeah. And um, because of that, we had to capture that in our reporting this year as well. So mm-hmm. we're becoming part of the conversation on the compliance side. Mm-hmm. And then from then on, it's it seems that, I mean, our board's pretty good, but they do listen a bit better in terms okay. of how we're responding and also compliance does help. I'll take that as a yes. Um, it, has, <laughs> it has at least helped advance the conversation. What about for you, Richard? I think two things have happened since the unanimous uh, support for Te Tarakia Tafri, which I was, mm-hmm. um, as chair of the Environment and Climate Change Committee at the time, quite surprised but quite pleased about that every member of the council and IMSB at the time supported Te Tarakia Tafri, which also um, was our first major plan that yeah. uh, was done in partnership with Mana Whenua. So I think that helped working alongside Mana Whenua the whole time. So to have that And just for context, this is June 2020. Yes. Yes. So, so I think having that, it was sort of fantastic. But what I have seen is what I thought would be a far more increased mm-hmm. pressure on, on politicians and 
uh, and central and local to act, uh, mitigation and, adaptas- and adaptation. But it has been a strange vibe to see, and it's not, uh, some people will maybe point to the mayor because of his kind of um, very loud opinions on things, but he's actually been quite good. It has been other newer councillors and maybe councillors who are now emboldened around you know, climate change when we've got a cost of living crisis and when we've got bu- massive budget issues should be swept aside. Mm-hmm. Um, or this whole fact of, oh, we're just, you know, it's done now, let's just focus on um, adaptation. Um, so it has been a difficult kind of ride for me because I'm like, of course, everyone's going to be mm-hmm. now focused. We've had this worst, some of the worst disasters that we've ever had in Auckland and then down the rest of the country two weeks later with um, Cyclone Gabrielle. I would have thought that people's focus would have um Change, but that hasn't been the case. Uh, uh, myself and Councillor Dalton, who's the deputy chair of the committee, um, we put through two weeks after the floods, like uh, a big, significant list of things. You know, we want to work on hazards, we want to work on plan changes, we want to work on regulatory decisions. Have we got all our um, settings right? Mm-hmm. What can we be doing in the space of um, adaptation and mitigation? And you know, there's been some great planning work done that we are now working on risks and it will be a difficult conversation. Some councillors are very keen for us to stop building in certain areas, but when we put those plan changes out, they will reduce people's house prices. They will stop allowing building in some areas of the city. So, which, you know, it's sort of the money where the mouth is situation again, is that people are very keen to jump to very easy uh, solutions. But when it comes to making those hard decisions, okay. I am a little sceptical we will we'll get there on that kind of unanimous approach we got but for climate. I'll, I'll yeah. take that as a sort of qualified yes, that you, you're, <laughs> it at least is um, you're, you're having conversations. Yeah. Is there a chance that given the change in government towards the centre-right, to, uh, also a change of council, uh, broadly speaking, I don't know if I could say, but towards a, 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 a more right-leaning council that... that um, Tatariki Atafari would be tempered with, would be changed? Um, it's probably not something Baron can answer easily, but um, but yeah, I mean, I have pushed back on, on some councils who are very negative on its targets now and on the Transport Emissions Reduction Plan, which we also passed unanimously. Um, there has been a lot of noise, but there's been no one wanting to put their line in the sand yet. So uh, some maybe feel emboldened now with the government change that is less pro-action on climate, I would say. Um, but no one is willing to put their name on, on the record. I've said, you know, put up a notice of motion if you if you don't agree with our targets or you don't want to, you know, do our bit or you think it's all, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. gov- central government's problem and not ours. But no one yet has, has done that. So I'm a little sceptical that that will happen. P- people do have to put their head above water and say, yeah. sadly, that's probably the wrong analogy to use. But um, Call it the parapet. Yeah, they do have to put themselves out there to say, I don't want to do X, Y, Z. Um, so I haven't seen that yet. So what I have been trying to get across to the different departments of council and finance and everyone, this is still our plan. This is still our targets. We should be aiming towards that, Auckland Transport and others who say, oh, you know, there, there has been a shift of um, kind of – I guess the vision or shift of the discussion, but actually on paper we on are paper still, still there doing and, that bit. And if we wanted to agitate to support you, to support the the continued pressure on council councillors to implement the plan, where, where should we be looking? Can we look to you to to signals to to say you know it's it's time to assemble people? Absolutely. So we we, we still get really good. Um, <coughs> 
support from the public. If you think of where we've come from on some of the big moves since Te Tarake Tafari, so there was $150 million worth of climate initiatives, really good support for that, um, additional water quality funding mm-hmm. um, and natural environment funding, very good 60 70% of Aucklanders who submit and support. A billion-dollar climate action targeted rate only a year ago mm. um, had six, maybe 70-something um, support of the people who submit, of course. But, sure. of course, if there was a strong move against, then we would see that stop. So that those are still underway. So if there are moves, I guess, through the 10-year budget, we are going to need, which will be out for consultation early next year, we are going to need some really strong feedback. And I know people are sick of giving feedback, um, but we are going to need some strong kind of push from communities who yeah. think this is important to keep those in there, increase those fundings, increase the focus, because there will be excuses from politicians sure. or parts of the council. But also I think central government will say, look, we don't believe X, Y, Z, that yeah. the, the community are on board well, with this it, anymore. The, the people that listen to this podcast, uh, of which there are many thousands, uh, are yes. uh, politically active and will welcome the opportunity to have a say. So you've heard that from the uh, horse's mouth. Please get involved in, in uh, supporting Richard and um, and the council to, to fulfil those plans, right, those commitments. Perrin, uh, I want to come to you to talk about you. As Tartaki Auckland Unlimited, you published two reports that mm-hmm. have reinforced the economic impact yeah. on Auckland of climate change and have kind of highlighted the vulnerabilities that we yes. we have, and um, if there was if there was if the storms weren't enough, how about a report from Deloitte that might do it? <laughs> um, tell tell us about these reports, and you sure. know what what are the implications of them? Can I just add something to what Richard said before? Just wanted to say, putting people asking people to put their name on things publicly. It makes a huge difference. My Uh husband's a psychologist. He always goes, get people to put their name publicly in the minutes that they were against this action. They don't want to be held to account saying, I actually changed the course of history because in the negative path. I'm just saying that's just spot on. In terms of the reports, we're quite proud of them. And it's, um, it's at Tataki Auckland Limited, we are an economic development agency. So we are co-leading the economy chapter of Tetaraki Atafari. Mm-hmm. And by co-leading, I mean as facilitating those conversations. We don't, our arm is not big enough to create that huge impact. So we're advocating bringing people together, such as Climate Connect Aotearoa, which I'm shamelessly um, kind of praising it and saying it's out there, please come and visit the site. Yeah. So some of this, the report part of it was done through Climate Connect Aotearoa and Tataki Auckland Unlimited, looking at the two sides of it. Is first of all, Climate Change Commission published a pathway, emission reduction pathway through technological changes, the first piece of advice. Yes. And they talked about all of New Zealand as a whole. This is the and ERP. ERP. Yes. And um, just saying that was the last one. There's a new one out again. So uh-huh. just kind of keeping people up to date. But mm-hmm. the first one said the impact on New Zealand's economy is going to be moderate. Let's just transition. Technology is there. If we actually take action, we mm-hmm. get there, which is not, I don't think it was, it was a bit conservative. But regardless, we had a look at Auckland, what that means for Auckland and on Auckland's GDP. GDP in Auckland will be more impacted in terms of for the rest of New Zealand and is actually going to go downhill from there. If we were just accepting GDP was a good measure only, which we know it's not, 
it just shows that we need to get ready. We need to start transitioning. And we need to understand what it means for different areas of Auckland. Okay. We know different areas of Auckland got different economic structures. Well, just explain yeah. that decline in GDP. Why? Why? What impact? What's the link between the, climate the, change and GDP? So this is, I'm not an economist, disclaimer, but from what I understand is because we are a more service-based city. Mm-hmm. So the goods and services come to us, we add value and um, export or we use here. Mm-hmm. So that means is that delay. Auckland, New Zealand's going to go kind of moderately down, but Auckland's going to drop. And so that's that's the reason for that. And it's because the inherent cost of carbon, if you don't take on technology on time, all that will come into it. So that's kind of, I'm not saying we shouldn't take climate action. GDP is not the only measure. We're not actually kind of figuring out how we should transition in an equitable way. So this mm-hmm. paper is not giving that. It's just saying that we need to start planning for that transition and skills and workforce. So you're saying in pure economic output, which output. is what GDP is a measure of, yes. um, the dependencies on things like transport, for instance, which mm. is just so fundamental to the Auckland economy. Auckland's like, yes, exactly. Because we're going to be dragging resources from different parts of the country. We'll be importing yeah. the sheep, shipping and sending out and so on. Even just that transport component, we'll if the carbon price rises, yes. there is an economic cost. Yep. And we got to understand what that means to our different communities, right? Yeah. And there's another paper which talks about taking, basically comparing taking indecisive climate action, like, just, you know, there's some policies there, we'll do what we can. Yes. Maybe we do adaptation here, and like it's not quite aggressive enough versus taking decisive climate action. So the paper showed, and it's modeling, modeling's got its limitation. It shows $22 billion opportunity there for Auckland to grab if we take action. And that's, so that means if you don't take action, as the opportunity cost of not taking right. action there. Yeah. And um, the other thing that we, we did actually have an event talking about these papers and what it means, and we had quite I mean, a very good panel on that. We just got to remember again, GDP is not the measure. It doesn't actually tell us the health of our communities sure. and how we transition. It's just a measure of just activity. a measure, but yeah. just trying to speak the economist language. There is merit in taking climate decisive climate action. Okay, can you give us an example of like where, why? Where does that twenty two? What's an example of twi- one of those twenty well, bits that adds up to twenty two? But it sounds like a wonderful number. I want some of that. <laughs> oh, me too. Um, so maybe I could actually fix my slip the back, <laughs> in the backyard. But um, I, I think the the way the report looked at it, they looked at different sectors that matter to Auckland. Mm. So as an as a upfront cost, we have to pay to transition. Mm-hmm. So you can see if you look at the the curve of GDP, you can see it goes kind of impact is high. So you're actually paying the price first, and there's a turning point. And I think if I recall, like a manufacturing was 2037. So it's pretty quick turnaround. And then you start seeing the benefit of it mm-hmm. as you transition to having low carbon pathways. So I just kind of thinking top of my head in terms of transition and what we're doing at Tataki, for example, as an organization, we're trying to transition out of gas. So gas, the supply, the price is going up. And the supply is going to go down. I'm not sure under the new policies if we kind of explore more for gas. I don't know what the implication of that is. Yeah. But if you pay the cost for ETS, if you actually have a proper emission trading scheme, mm. the cost would be embedded in that. And the supply of gas is not going to be enough. So we pay more cost. So it would be beneficial for us now to invest 
to go solar and then also HVAC systems uh, electric, then that way we can actually long term, we can see it pays off for us. Right. So we don't depend on gas as much, just like a simple yeah. example for us. That's what we're doing in our sites as well, looking at transitioning out of fossil fuels. I think one of the liabilities that's identified by people like the Institute of Directors is that there's there's practical inputs such mm. as the gas, but there's also customer implications that if you are not compliant yes. in the carbon sense, you may be punished mm -hmm. by regulators, you may be punished by customers, you may be punished at the border if you're an exporter. Exactly. Um, and and yeah. the EU, for instance, mm -hmm. is changing the rules now around what's is is looking at changing its rules around including carbon mm. emissions as one of those sort of tariff barriers that you might have to. So your point is just bring the future forward, start yes. this transition now, and you won't be punished in five or ten years' time necessarily and or as And much. it's just our punishment, right? We are moving. The world is moving. Let's move with it. It's just there's, there's nothing wrong with getting rid of fossil fuels. Right. When I was young, I remember the discussion was around – I was young so many years ago. <laughs> Still young. Um, they talked about – the limited resources we've got, fine, and then we wanted to move out then. Now we're talking about emissions. People don't really want to take it on board. Mm -hmm. Let's just have cleaner sources and start transitioning now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, this is one of the questions I put to KPMG who were giving us uh, as councillors an idea of what we should be putting in our SOI, you know, statements of intent to the CCOs and things. And, of course, CCOs being council. Council-controlled organisations so, or control the transport, Tartaki, water care. Water care, so on, uh, yeah. <coughs> It's... And the questions were coming up, like, why are you putting, you know, why worry about climate? Like, why, you know, just that's a, and I sort of posed the question, is this some sort of just fluffy public sector council thing that, you know, just a few of us have yeah. pushed forward? And keeping you very clear, like, we as a city and as a council are at risk of falling behind not only other cities in New Zealand, but cities um in Australia and across the world um, that we like to, you know, work with or, mm. or, or compare ourselves to, but also businesses. So businesses are, are jumping mm -hmm. ahead for marketing reasons, but for financial reasons, for just yeah. being better corporate citizens. And so I think some councillors in my experience at the moment aren't really registering that this isn't just like council forcing it upon people. Right. It's about us taking responsibility and it is about that buffer. So if we do nothing and just let the carbon pr price kind of direct um, all the emissions reduction, really we're going to see huge pressure on our more vulnerable communities, get, you know, petrol prices, power prices go up if we haven't looked at opportunities. So, yes, cycle lanes create this kind of anti, I don't know what, kind of anti-car rhetoric, but it just gives people opportunities to then travel in different ways to buffer mm. themselves mm. out of what may be a 4 or $5 a litre petrol price in a couple of years. Or, or, you know, if we're only looking at that with... With Auckland, with 43% of our emissions being transport, we are mm -hmm. very susceptible to yeah. that kind of dramatic change in price, which then affects the whole right. value chain. It affects yeah. all products coming through. So if we're looking at, you know, this is what part of the climate action targeted rate was about, it's 78 improved bus routes, it's 10 new frequent routes. I mean, two of the routes have started already, and we're seeing 4,000 people a day use those. Yeah. So that might look like it's just focusing on transport, but it, actually it's about transitioning people to be able to use and connect in a different way also improves our um, health. We've got, yeah. we had the worst ever um, air quality in the city in the Queen Street Valley. We've obviously used um, some of that funding to make it low emissions, get the low emissions buses in there, take a couple lanes off, shock horror of, of mm -hmm. Queen Street. And 
we are seeing a massive uptick in pedestrian um, use, but also a massive reduction in vehicles. And so over time, that'll become a low emission zone, but also it becomes better for people's health and right. that has yeah. spin off as well. And it's the foot traffic down at the bottom of Queen Street is such a contrast as a as a frequent visitor yeah. to Queen Street on my bike. Um, you get to Victoria Street yes. and you're back into sort of uh, old Queen Street and the <laughs> yeah. experience is, is horrible. Quite different, yeah. It's quite different. It's quite smelly. Um, there's hardly any humans around. The you, noise? The noise is yeah. much higher. You get down to the bottom of Queen Street and suddenly you've got this buzzy yeah. place. There's lots. It feels much more human yeah. um, and the shops look vibrant. Um, you know, I guess it's um, you know, moving up Queen Street and making that change as, as it goes. But it's such a good example of – it's not just addressing a problem. It's actually, to your point, Parent, it's it's introducing new opportunities. Exactly. That, yeah. that po- possibly we didn't even anticipate the, um, you know, the upside. The core benefits of it, right? Yeah. What Richard's saying is health, and I think better connected communities, and it's just it's, the list who, goes who on. Who doesn't want yeah. that? Yeah. Who doesn't want that? I <laughs> yeah. know. But I think also well, lots for of people the, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I think also for the exports and stuff. I think you have the good example with Tesco and in the mm. UK. Um, parent that you know they're sort of saying that we will you know they I think about do they take it's a third of their um, products I think from New Zealand in the dairy and um, meat sector and they're looking to us you know if you don't if New Zealand we're, we're taking it such a long way that if you don't improve um, your emissions as a country we actually won't be taking that That's because right. we can't prove to our customers that we're being carbon um, friendly or, yeah, yeah. or, you know, so it's all these other things and business are doing that already. It's sort of like this weird vibe that we've seen through the election too that, you know, the government's putting cost on business when a lot of the time the business are looking for ways to improve, reduce their emissions, look better um, internationally, compete with their partners in New Zealand exactly, and yeah. also just be a good citizen. They, You know, all those yeah, people who work yeah. for those have kids and they know they saw what happened on January 27th and and although we're little, we'll also be affected because we're little as well. So people kind of don't think about that as much. They they think, oh, we're too small to make a difference. But actually, if we don't change our behaviours and and contribute, we will be affected in a far more intense way because we are small. Mm. Perrin, um, you were at, the, I think, the Climate Change and Business yes. Conference. And one of the messages that I took from that very much was private sector was saying we are – at this party, and we want we want leadership from government and from council. Would, would, am I am I being overly optimistic in that? No, I thought um, we had a um, stand for Climate Connect Aotearoa at Climate Change Business Conference. So we had a com- lot of conversations with businesses there as well. I think people businesses want certainty in terms of policies, mm. which I think we saw from what potentially like MFE did James Shaw kind of policies and climate yes. change kind of direction we had and they made decisions on that basis and they want to move forward yeah. and a lot of them are global like international businesses so as Richard said they're taking action and they want that to continue that's mm. the sense I got Yes, and I just even got the sense from the agriculture sector as well mm-hmm. they do want to move and I think we understand uh, I mean I'm generalizing there but we understand kind of internationally we still want to be that desirable kind of product and destination yes. as well. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, Richard, um, my sense is that uh, with, an, with an engineer for a mayor, or at least someone that worked in the engineering sector, this desire to build some stuff to cope with the storms 
was one of the directions, well, one of the reactions to the January storms. Are you finding that the, to use the jargon, is the conversation moving from adaptation to, sorry, to from mitigation to adaptation? Are we now talking about building seawalls and such? Yeah, definitely. So the, um, you know, I do support, and I've been quite, you know, pleased the mayor has been so um, supportive of the making space for water. Um, Program, mm-hmm. um, which this is will the, the, the soggy, spongy city. Yeah, so sort of that sponge city model, and he's really keen to see. You know, he was like, "We need to open stream. We need to, we need to do this." Um, like, I s- took him, and I also uh, took James Shaw and Chloe Swarbrick. Not long after, the, they wanted to come see slips and flooded homes, and I said, "Hey, how do, how about I take you to Te Ara Awataha, which is in Northcote, which is a brand new, which opened only a couple months before the um, the floods." Uh, basically greenway through Northcote. We had the opportunity in that case because all the houses were removed by government and uh, council removed their infrastructure and um, through that process because it's a full kind of housing project, I guess. So we had the opportunity to reform the roads and bring back the awa that was covered in roads and pipes. But it used to flood before the... um, you know, before it was done on a normal storm and through January 27, it didn't flood at all. Those houses didn't get flooded, the streets didn't flood. Huh. So um, that also has some mitigation benefits. It's got wetlands and it brings, obviously removes all that concrete and piping and so it makes it more resilient. So in some respects, this is an exciting thing for adaptation and a very um, more nature-based solution. Mm-hmm. So, and the, and the mayor's really supportive of that. He's like, I don't want to see big concrete caverns like you've got in Milford and those poor people got know, two metre high water coming through their homes because in the 70s and 80s they built big, you know, houses right up against these Mm. concrete culverts. Um, But I do worry not so much, you know, the mayor hasn't been like, let's pull back on mitigation, but there is this kind of jump that, oh, look, we're already there. We may as well just, you know, build up around the city. Um, But I think what I keep making clear is we're sitting in a one5 degree of warming world, I guess, right now. Like it yes. came a lot faster than we maybe expected. Scientists probably said it's about right. But we don't want to get to a 3.5 um, mm. because – so we need to contribute. It's science-based. It's making our contribution to the Paris Agreement as a city, as a country. Mm. Um, because if we don't, it, there's nothing mm. that can – there's nothing that we can adapt to. Mm. So we will be able to make some difference in some communities with – Adaptation with uh, you know rebuilding, making space, removing homes, and it's not going to be easy, but it won't happen everywhere. We cannot build infrastructure for what happened uh, in many parts of our city for what happened on January twenty seventh. And mm. if all climate science is what we need to believe, which we do, um, it will be happening more often. Uh, one in one hundred year floods, it's will be happening every yeah. every year or every couple of years. And it's just we're going to have to have individual resilience on households and businesses. We're also going to have to build that in. But, I mean, even to do this program, we've negotiated hard with the government. I was on the political advisory group with that to get about a billion. We still don't know how we're going to pay for our billion of, buy- of buyouts of this making space for water, of plan for, um, you know, making, opening up culverts and things. But that is not going to fix the issue, and we can't mm-hmm. just—we won't be able mm-hmm. to build our way out of it. Sure. And if you're thinking of ten thousand slips, like you know, there mm-hmm. are people saying to me, "You oh, know, when are we rebuilding that wharf or those stairs or that X Y Z from the storm?" And mm-hmm. we might have—I know of uh, s- several assets that we've only just rebuilt from, like the Tasman Tempest in 2018, millions of dollars worth of ratepayers' money built and rebuilding stuff that got ripped out right. two, three years later. So. 
we've got to make those hard decisions and bring people along with us. It's going to be sad because people, you know, value. I think of Leroy's Bush and yeah. our um, area. We're looking at, you know, probably a million dollars to fix that if we can fix it. Mm-hmm. The whole valley was sucked out. You know, mm-hmm. it was. It's stuff we just couldn't ever predict. Yeah. Um, I mean, I say that. I just don't think I could believe it with my own eyes. Yes. But I'm, sadly, that has been predicted. I think that's the the visceral nature of the storm. Both um, that and Cyclone Gabriel have really reinforced, and they, they were epic winds again um, earlier in October, well, yes. mid October. That just kind of reinforced that. Um, R- Richard, when can I ride my bike on the <laughs> on the bridge? Well, I think after the week, um, the the recent central government election, I, it's looking less and less likely. So um, that's a disappointment for me. I guess that we. There's no plan. It doesn't feel like there's any plan for walking and cycling over the bridge. That's up to Wakakotahi. They say it's too unsafe right now, and I doubt the trials will happen um, now with the change of government. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- it's a shame there wasn't a way to bring people with us during COVID. I think maybe some of our successes of COVID as a, you know, coming out of that first lockdown really quickly and, and you know, going back to normal didn't give us the opportunity. You know, obviously we that's amazing that that happened and we didn't have the deaths that others did. But I think other cities and countries had an experience which was so dramatic that they were able to try things and bring people mm-hmm. with them because they had to from a health perspective and yeah. people understood it. But because we raced back to normal um, with COVID, which was great, I think that when we aren't having the same experience as other cities have, which are now like begging people not to take out cycle lanes or the big streets where they've turned them into um, outdoor dining areas. And, you know, they just didn't want that because they had time to learn a new way of living that actually Mm -hmm. was successful. If you look at the Northern Busway, everyone said no one would use buses Mm. uh, on the shore. I think the first couple of years was about 600,000 users per year. But in 2019, before COVID, there was eight and a half million users on that busway. (laughs) You have less than 50% of the vehicles going over the bridge in the the morning peak uh, vehicles now, it's mostly people and buses. Yeah. So it's hard to show people the future without making it really disruptive. And so I think politicians are now, because it's central government, well, it's actually Waka Kutai independent decision, independent, but directed by a, a government. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there's a very long answer to say I doubt any time soon. Well, that's incredibly depressing. So let's finish on a uh, vision of hope. So I have two sons that live in Melbourne and now a, a grandson as well. Um how am I going to lure them back? To describe an exciting future for Auckland, Perrin. What what does that look like? Or you're frowning. Maybe get, please tell me <laughs> that me Tartaki Auckland day. Unlimited can sell me a vision <laughs> of a climate resilient and a climate friendly Auckland. It's oh goodness. I'm kind of mourning in terms of climate policies. It's if. I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So as that uncertainty mm-hmm. is in front of me and seeing having a vision is hard. But I think for me, I've got two kids as well. So that's, they kind of, I they're my hope and I want their future to be secure. So I think, unfortunately, we're going to have more climate, extreme climate events. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to respond and we can see whatever kind of leaning government right or left you have, they're going to have to have climate policies. That's my hope. And you um, just think the physical reality of it is physical force reality change. is here, and yeah. it will. But it how will do we happen. get on the front foot, Parent, to to actually, you know, to be a, uh, 
an exciting place that responds to climate, not just a reactive place? I think as, as I deal with businesses, we work with businesses and I've been on a few panels actually with Richard as well. It's about knowing that there are a lot of people like us out there. There are a lot of tools out there. So reach out mm-hmm. and get support because I think it could be quite overwhelming thinking, where am I going to take my, what does that mean to me or my business or my yes. household? There is a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of people with goodwill out there they can support and that's why I'm in this business that's why Richard is I'm talking on your behalf we want to help mm-hmm. so come out and ask us questions we're here to and answer that and us would be Climate Connect Aotearoa Climate Connect Aotearoa Tata Ki Auckland Unlimited individually me nominating Richard he's very responsive <laughs> he's, he's awesome but um, I, I think we will eventually move in the right direction because mm-hmm. we will be forced to. Because we to. have to. Yes. Yeah. That's what I think. It's not very hopeful, is it? It's but so Auckland, though, isn't it? Anyway, I, th- thank you, Carol. <laughs> I'm going to no go worries. to Richard. Um, I mean, I think the, the Tamaki Makoto vision for me is that the, the greener, the, the healthier, the, the better city to connect with communities I think that a lot is changing despite the politics. I think that people are demanding better. I think if you think of tiny, silly, in my opinion, examples like plastic bags, that was something that people complained about. That I don't. Very true. I think yeah. if we took plastic bags back now, people would would right. be just think it was the most yeah. ridiculous thing. If yeah. you look at, I want to bring smoking back into restaurants. Yeah, yeah. So it it is changing that the the kids that Angatahi that are coming forward are just demanding this action. You won't, if you look at resurgent sort of uh, Green Party around our urban centres, you're seeing it across the world. If people don't catch up with these climate policies, and I believe that the new government will still focus on it. The, the last one did. I mean, it was National that signed up to the Paris Agreement, yes. um, which was an unfunded mm-hmm. direction that they thought they had to sign up to. You know, unless we want to be like Trump's America, they're not going to pull out of that. So right. yeah, I, yeah. I think that there's a lot of rhetoric out there that actually doesn't match the actions. Mm-hmm. And what I want to see is the city, we're going to build a more resilient city. We're going to stop piping streams. We're going to actually, we will have more walking and cycling um, just because people are demanding it. We're going to have more public transport because it's normal. Um, We might not have these big light rail projects that we might have hoped for, and I'm disappointed that, you know, there aren't tracks on Dominion Road right now, but I think largely people are seeing the the cost of doing what we're doing right now is going to grow too high, so people are going to look for options and demand more. But I think a greener city, we've got, you know, we planted... 1.6 1.6 million trees as a as a council in the last year. We're getting huge amounts of uh, funding into our urban Nahiri. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily climate, but it will make the city cooler and, and better air quality. Um, but I think that the demands for climate action are louder than the politicians can just pretend yeah. people don't want it. So I think the the end of the day, we're going to have a greener city. We're going to have a city that is better and more resilient, unfortunately, because we've had these terrible episodes. And I think working with mana whenua, which I've seen right across business, right across community, our council, um, once again, people don't want to put their name against these things (laughs) on paper. So there's a lot of rhetoric, but I think in the end we're traveling faster than I thought we would, but I think a lot of people will continue to demand more. And you will see those massive protests. I remember the the 50,000, most of the young people – the climate strikes, that mm. first yes. big one on yeah. Queen Street, and they are demanding action. And I think that might have been around the same 2019, time. 2019, yeah. when yeah. we declared climate okay. emergency, yeah. I remember. Yeah. So so well. it, that will come up again. Yeah. And if you see yeah. politicians pushing back in a, in a against the international vibe that we need to do this, um, I, uh, people power is much stronger now. Mm. Um, so I, I feel 
confident that the city's going to be in a better place. Will it be where I thought or hoped it would be by now? No. But I think generally we're going to live in a better better city that is more connected and people are thinking about it in an individual way because of the, the public yeah. policy. So reducing waste and all those those smaller uh, actions as well. My hopes, um, I'll contribute to this uh, little uh, wish list. My hope is that the city rail link and the continued investment in public transport by Auckland Council um, will really transform the isthmus experience. The isthmus is so small. It's just mm-hmm. this tiny parcel of land. We should be able to network it with cheap, electrified public transport and cycleways so that it's really easy for a young person or a young family to get not just sort of north and south into the CBD but across the isthmus from Onehunga uh, to Henderson and from Henderson to um, well, somewhere out east, Botany. Yeah. Um, that would, I think, completely transform the experience of Auckland and I reckon you would get much, well, I mean, obviously you'd get better mobility but that access is going to drive Retail, it's going to drive entertainment, access to schools, um, employment, and so on. So my my hope is that by the time I have this conversation again with my kids about coming home, they've got they've come into a really vibrant fifteen minute city. That would be my hope. Yeah. So could you just do that, please? Absolutely. And, and I, I've got a son that's about to turn two, and he is obsessed, not my fault, but hope, hoping it's my fault, with buses. He's just obsessed. Whenever he sees a bus, whenever there's a bus that goes past our house, just obsessed, yelling, screaming for buses. And I think that has changed since I was a kid. Yeah. There were no buses. When I went to university from the, the shore, it was every 40 minutes. If you missed it, you just wouldn't bother going to your lecture that day. You would. Um, there was no hop cards until 2013. Yeah. There was um, no space in the city to stand because Auckland City Council didn't want to provide any infrastructure for North Shore City Council buses coming over here, so you just kind of got dropped on the street. <laughs> there was no, there was no seating or anything. And I just think about the transformation in a short amount of time. We That's doubled. That's true. Yeah, we, Auckland Transport's come such a yeah. long way. I know they get a lot of criticism, but I lived in Melbourne for ten years before moving back to Auckland, and I can see like your kids. Why would they want to come here from Melbourne? Yeah. But it was so. It's well connected. Even yeah. they complain about that. It's not con- connected enough. Yeah. yeah, but um, coming back to Auckland has really changed. I wouldn't come to the city any other way. I would mm-hmm. just catch the bus. Yeah, yeah. Why would I walk you? up the road to, from yeah. from my house, and it's every five minutes in the morning, and it's really efficient. And it's the double deckers that we fought so hard for on the on the shore. But mm. everyone will well hoping to have that experience soon. Eastern Busway, yes. City Rail Link, the Northwestern, and and you know Pukekohe, um electrification. You've got all these extra things that. You know, th- even the extension to the busway has taken about 15 minutes off people traveling from Hibiscus down to the city because they no longer have to fight the traffic lights. And yeah, come through. So so once people jump in and use it, and then I think the, the new government will also be forced, and they have actually put in their transport plans a lot more public transport than may have been in there yeah. many years ago. So I think it's, it is the community making kind of these things very, you know, every party must fight on these issues. Yeah. I mean... I'm hoping we got more uh, cycling money out of the last national government than we had in the last six years of. of well, John Key started it all, didn't yeah. he? Um, so that's great. Well, um, we've been. So there's a lot of hope. Thank God for I'm, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, very hopeful. Thank you, um, Richard Hills and um, Perrin Raphael Thompson, for your time and um, for your mahi. Please keep going. So um, if you want to get politically active and support uh, the initiatives, then. Um, Council, there are submissions on a regular basis, so please support 
Yes, yes. you're nodding. Yes, yeah. so submissions <laughs> through the um, the 10-year budget will be huge in February, March to, to submit on and feedback right. on and encourage okay. friends. But there's always there's always hundreds of consultations to, yep. to feedback on, and they do make a difference even though it's blimmin' annoying that people have to keep telling us the same thing. But That's it okay. is important to That's our job, that. to be politically active. And if, if businesses want to engage with Tataki, they can contact you directly, Perrin, or especially go through Climate Connect Aotearoa. Yes, please. Which has an awesome website. I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much, and we'll see you again soon. Kia thank you. Thank you for having us. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. 